Good evening, everyone. A warm welcome to all of you to our Friday evening lecture seminar series here at the Middle East Center. My name is Toby Mattison. I'm the Sir Adam Roberts Senior Research Fellow in the International Relations of the Middle East. And it's a great pleasure for me to host today three distinguished speakers who are going to enlighten us on the contemporary and recent political events in Iraq. And perhaps I say a few words why I chose to put together this uh, panel. This spring, I went to Iraq for the first time on a short research trip and I was amazed by the, you know, dynamics, political, social and religious and ideational that were going on there. And I thought that, you know, in contemporary media coverage of the region, but also in the academic literature, we very much get a surface view of what's going on. And we hadn't really put on a panel on proper Iraqi politics here for a while. So it is my great pleasure to have three Iraqi scholars talk about the subject and without further ado, I will give the platform to Harith Hassan, who is a non-resident senior research fellow at the Carnegie Middle East Center, where his research focuses on Iraq, sectarianism, identity politics, religious actors, and state-society relations. He received his PhD in political science from Santa Anna School for Advanced Studies in Pisa, Italy, and had previously been at the Central European University in Budapest. And Harith, the floor is yours. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me. It's nice to be in Oxford and to meet very good friends, Haidar and Nad. So I thought to start by trying to answer the question raised by the title of this uh, panel, Iraq after the election, is it a new beginning? And I'm tempted to blatantly say, no, it's not a new be beginning. But I think there are some caveats here that are worth mentioning. I think there is a desire for a new beginning. There is demand and pressure for a new beginning in Iraq for various reasons. I mean, first of all, last year has witnessed the end of the major military operations against ISIS, especially with the liberation of Mosul. It was followed by the failed attempt of the Kurdistan regional government to separate from Iraq. And with that, there was an end for all the talk that we've been hearing since the 2014 about the end of Iraq, the breakup of Iraq. There was a, a feeling that Iraq is still there and what is needed more now is to reform the system, to change the modes of governance in the country. Some politicians would say to have a new political contract, and these are the words of, for example, Barham Saleh, who just became a president in Iraq. So there was this spirit and mood that there has to be a new beginning. Also, there is an increasing pressure resulted from the socio-economic conditions in the country. The plummeting of oil prices, the expenses of war against ISIS, revealed the, uh, the shortcomings and defects of the Iraqi system of government, the dysfunctionality of the government and the state. We're talking about a society in which more than about 60% of its populations are under 24 years old. The unemployment is rising. It's almost 40% among the youth. Of course, probably we all know about the rampant corruption in, in the country, the dominance of patronage politics. With that, there is uh, the poor public services, the dysfunctionality of state institutions, electricity shortage, the water crisis that is becoming more serious by time. All these factors created 
demand for change, demand for a new beginning. And when there was a feeling that this new beginning cannot be secured through the political process, through the electoral process, because you have a political elite that managed to use election, to use legal and extra legal means to reproduce its dominance, there were people going to the street, especially in, in this last summer, when the temperature reached 51, 52 degrees Celsius. So many people could not afford it anymore. And there was a further radicalization of rejection of protest uh, against the political elite. And that also put a pressure on the political elite and the demand for the new beginning. So there are rising expectations, but a failure to meet those expectations by the political elite. And that will lead me to talk about the position of an important societal actor in Iraqi society. I mean the Shia clerical authority, and known as Marja'iyya, which is based in Najaf, where is the center, one of the main two centers of Shia religious seminaries is located, and also it's a, the place of the grand Shia cleric, the most followed and emulated cleric, which is also the topic of my research. To explain the, the attitude of the Marja'iyya, this challenge, I think the Marja'iyya on the one hand has seen its status boosted after 2003. The political order that was created after 2003 strengthened the position of the clerical authority. It's no longer intimidated by the government or harassed by the security forces as was the case before 2003. Indeed, if you search the YouTube, you will find a video in which Iraqi soldiers marching on their knees towards the house of the Grand Shia cleric and chanting slogans, venerating the cleric. Iraqi political elite, all the factions continuously pay lip service to Sistani, the Grand Cleric, saying that they follow his guidance, his instructions. They try to appear close to him in order to gain more legitimacy and more public support. The Friday sermon in Karbala, which is given on behalf of the Grand Cleric, is broadcasted over Iraqi media. So there is something in you in terms of the status and the visibility of the Shia clerical authority in the public sphere that hasn't been there before any period since the foundation of the modern Iraq. So obviously the Shia clerical authority has an interest in maintaining this order. But at the same time, we're talking about uh, an institution that considers itself non-state actors, a societal authority, although I, I argue that this, this authority has been formalized to some degree after 2003, but in the perception of the Marja'iyya that it is actually an authority that derives its influence and power from society, from representing social demand. Shia clerics always take pride in being autonomous from the state. They compare themselves to Sunni clerics and they say Sunni clerics were always state employees. We maintained our autonomy from the state, sustained our association with society and we have to be the voice of the people. Otherwise, the social capital that this authority has built will be lost over time. Therefore, seeing the position of Sistani towards the current political situation, on the one hand, he's trying to resist the radical forces that are pushing things towards toppling the regime or taking radi radical actions like cancellation of parliament, things demand that are very radical because 
the, the Marjaya as an institution, it's not just a person, it's an institution, it's not only Sistani, it's his office, his clerical networks, all the institutions associated with it. With it. This institution believes that the current political order has been favorable to, to it, gave it enough freedom to operate, that, therefore it's important to sustain the political order, but at the same time they are trying to put pressure on the, to use the street pressure, to put pressure on the political elite in order to make some changes within the system to reform it. Therefore, after the latest protest in Basra that became very radical, to the extent that protesters attacked the headquarters of Shia political parties, even Shia, powerful Shia militias, a Sistani's representative gave a statement in which he said that the political group have to quickly choose a new prime minister. The prime minister has to be strong and brave to stand against corrupt elements in the system and to reform the system. Otherwise, we will take a further action. So I don't know what is that further action. I, I think even Sistani is not sure what it is, what it will be, but obviously there is a feeling that we cannot just protecting this political order. There has to be a change because this change is necessary for sustaining the social capital of the clerical authority. Now, the reason I'm focusing on, I mean, the first time I started to think about this topic, the, the, the Shia clerical authority, the Merjaiya, was in 2014. When I had a question following the ISIS invasion of Mosul, how come that the Iraqi formal army is staffed with hundreds of thousands of officers and soldiers and heavily funded by the Iraqi government and the, by the United States government collapsed rapidly in front of a few hundred ISIS fighters, while a fatwa of six lines given by the Shia Grand Cleric is perceived as a breaking point in that conflict. It boosted the public morale among Iraqi Shias. It was also used to legitimize the formation of new militias ending up with the creating this umbrella that called popular mobilization forces. I think Renard will focus on this. Where does this authority come from? Is this authority real or constructed? So I tried to dig deeper in understanding the dynamics of the Shia religious field and religious actors. Drawing on some good theoretical work on Max Weber's, Pierre Baudio, Foucault, and with the understanding that first, to understand authority, one needs to, to look at the institutions. Authority cannot be exerted without institutions. So it's important to understand how these institutions form, what are their traditions, how, how do they project their authority. On the other hand, I'm drawing also on Foucault's concept of technologies of power, discursive process that is reflective of a certain configuration of power relations, on the fact that authority is relational, it, is, it, is, it doesn't exist in a vacuum, it exists in relation to, to other institutions and other actors. And trying through those perspectives to understand how the clerical authorities evolved in the, in the country and projected this power in post-2003 Iraq. And the main argument I'm making here is that in the context of the disintegration of political order, non-state actors, societal actors, emerged to fill the power vacuum, the authority vacuum. And with that, they compete with each other. Here, using Baudio's concept of the religious field as a field of 
forces competing to improve their positions. And through this competition and struggles, a new configurations of power relations emerge. And with that, a new orthodoxy, understanding orthodoxy not merely as a theological concept, but also as a reflection of sociopolitical power relations. And I draw some analogy with another period in the history of Shiism in which there was a disintegration of political order, that is the post-Safavide period. Probably those who are familiar with the history of the region, in the Safavide period, 12 Shiism was the official ideology. There was an alliance between the Shahs and the Shia clerics that created some kind of orthodoxy that was propagated through the ideological machine of the state, but also dependent on the, the state's violent means to impose itself <coughs> against religious rivals. And when the Safavite state collapsed, disintegrated, there were new dynamics, like the dominant orthodoxy also was undermined, and there were new dynamics. In the, in the 18th century, there was the emergence of new heterodox movements, beginning with the Sheikhiyah, which gave birth to another movement, Babiyyah, Babism, and from which, which evolved into Baha'ism, which is today a, a, an independent religion. And these messianic movements challenged the, what was the, the dominant orthodoxy. Also, when the Safavite empire collapsed, Shia clerics that were dependent on the protection and patronage of the state migrated from Iran and settled in the Shia shrine cities, Najaf, Karbala, in Iraq. And there, there, there was the beginning of a process that ended up with the centralization of Shia clerical authority and the dominance of a version of Shiaism called Usuli Shiaism, which gave authority to the clerics. The clerics in, in Usuli Shiaism are not merely transmitter of traditions, but they are ones who have the credentials and the knowledge to exert efforts to deduct Islamic rulings, even by using rational methodology. In a way, the, the cleric, uh, or what is called in Shiaism the mujtahid, became an authority beside the scripture, beside the tradition. He became authority by himself. This was the process of centralization of a clerical authority and creating a new orthodoxy. To jump from that period to the post-2003 Iraq, I, um, my argument is that there was also a collapse of political order in, in 2003. Um, even before 2003, there was a devolution of uh, state authority in the 90s because of the sanctions, because of the wars, but basically because of sanctions, because the state was deprived of 90, almost 95% of its resources. There was, so there was some kind of retreat from the state, and that also created a space for non-state actors to also try to project their authority. And in, in that context, the movement of Muhammad, Sad, Muhammad Sadaq al-Sadr emerge and mobilize a large following in, among the Shia poor sectors and try to challenge not only the regime but also the traditional clerical authority that is rep represented today by Sistani. But uh, post-2003 Iraq is quali qualitatively different because there was a complete collapse of the political order and in that context different societal actors including religious actors began to compete within each other to fill the vacuum. And I'm here not arguing or reiterating the argument that there is something inherently religious about these societies and therefore once the authoritarian regimes collapse, the religious actors will dominate. No, what I'm saying is that 
social context is constitutive of the of the religious authority and the actions of religious actors. And in that particular context, religious actors, Shia religious actors emerged as strong as they appear to be, not because they are inherently strong, but because first the weakness of all other actors. 30 years of the Ba'athi ruling, at least two decades of that ruling had a characteristic of totalitarian governing, has completely dismantled civil society, has completely destroyed organizations that could operate independently of the, of the regime. There, there was all type of voluntary political associations were banned, all civil society organizations, worker unions, student unions, intelligentsia unions, they were all subordinated to the regime. Therefore, there was no space to form any kind of associations that independent from the regime. And when the regime collapsed in 2003, there was none of these organizations that could claim some credibility or, or authority to try to be active in the social space. Yet, religious actors that sustain some autonomy from the state, some social capital, had a better advantage. And here also the difference between <coughs> Shia clerical actors and Sunni clerical actors, because Shia clerical actors sustained their autonomy from the state, a degree of autonomy that preserved their social capital. And also the structure, the networks through which they project their authority in society. Unlike Sunni, Sunni clerics, who were completely subordinated to the state and became state employees. And when the, once the state collapsed, there was a, a vacuum that was eventually filled by radical forces simply because there were no institutions that could resist this radicalization. At the same time, there was a, a context, and here the combination of structure and agency is important. There was a, a context in which Sistani and the Shia clerical authority managed to appear stronger and more powerful, and as venerated today, as I explained uh, at the beginning, the context is composed of factors such as Sistani himself did not adopt any radical uh, positions, so he kept his dis distance from radical forces, but at the same time tried to appear as representative of social demands. For example, he, didn't, he objected the U.S. Obje occupation of Iraq, but he did not call for violent resistance of that occupation, and that strengthened his position in the negotiation with the American occupation administration in, in Iraq. He was also perceived as an, an alternative uh, authority between the Shia exiled groups that came from abroad. They did not have constituency inside Iraq. And more indigenous groups, such as the Sedris movement, that opted to very radical choices, such as challenging and fighting the American occupation. So Sistani appeared as a broker between these groups. Uh, he also appeared as broker or alternative, uh, as, as someone who's giving an alternative between the Iranian influence and the American influence. He's accepted by both sides, and therefore that also gave him some advantage over other actors. I could continue talking about how the authority of Sistani has been constructed after 2003, but I think the point is now clear, and I finished my time, so thank you very much. 
Thank you very much, Harith. Our next speaker is Haider al Khoui, who is a doctoral candidate at the University of Exeter, where he focuses on US foreign policy and ethno-sectarian politics in Iraq. He's a former fellow at Chatham House and the European Council on Foreign Relations, where he worked on political and security challenges in post-ISIS Iraq. Thank you very much, Toby, and it's a pleasure to be here at Oxford and, uh, of course, joining this uh, distinguished panel. I'm glad Harith talked about some of the theoretical and historical context because my remarks will focus on more recent developments, particularly with the religious establishment in Iraq and, of course, the challenges facing the new government. The May 2018 general election in Iraq was the very first election since the fall of Saddam's regime in which the religious establishment didn't encourage Iraqi people to vote. So it was a, a very big shift from previous elections where voting was considered part of your national and religious duty. So it went from being a national duty to Sistani's more recent position, which was you decide for yourselves uh, if you want to vote and, and who to vote uh, for. And of course, there's been a boycott of politicians predating the elections, and that I think reflects the wider dissatisfaction uh, of the grassroots with the political elite. And that was one of the reasons why the Bosra protests were so violent. The election itself, it was the lowest recorded turnout since 2005. The actual declared official number is 44%. But actually speaking to many Iraqi officials, they believe the real number is much closer to 20, 25%. So there is a a real crisis of legitimacy and credibility of the governing class. So it's no longer just the case of Sunnis being upset with the status quo or being marginalized or pushed away, but now more and more Shia from Baghdad to the south are simply fed up of the status quo. And it's actually this crisis of legitimacy and credibility which led to the current government being formed and led to the political parties in Iraq agreeing on Adil Abdel Mahdi as prime minister. They simply, amongst themselves, did not have a viable candidate who could meet the people's demands and also Najaf's demands in that the candidate should be independent, he should be courageous, he should be firm and competent. I think the biggest challenge the current prime minister faces is the fact that he is independent. He has no power base of his own and he's going to be constrained by the very same obstacles that the former Prime Minister Abadi faced, particularly when it comes to pushing much-needed reform in Iraq. And of course, the two biggest obstacles are corruption and the political parties. And of course, corruption and political parties are themselves inextricably linked, given the corruption within the political parties in Iraq. So Adil Abdel Mehdi is going to face vested interests, very powerful vested interests, who are going to resist his moves towards reform. And on that point, what we do know about Adil Abdel Mahdi and Abadi before him is that the former prime minister was a much better manager and he still failed miserably to push these reforms. So the current prime minister has, has an even bigger task ahead of himself. And the weakness of the current prime minister, I think, was reflected in the cabinet formation uh, itself and this new government that was formed. Yes, we have several independent technocrats in cabinet, but the price the Prime Minister had to pay for Kurdish support of his government was to give the finance ministry to Borzani's chief of staff, which is remarkable in itself. So just over a year ago, the finance minister, who was then the chief of staff to the Kurdish president, 
said Iraq is a failed state. And he's been cons consistently saying Iraq is a failed state. And of course, he was part of the failed bid for Kurdish independence. But now, today, he's in a very powerful position. The, the budget of the finance ministry is uh, over 24 billion US dollars. And this is what makes the prime minister's position precarious and, and makes his job extremely awkward. In addition to this, of course, the prime minister's hands are going to be tied by extremely powerful rival Shia actors and political parties, many of whom have very powerful military wings, which have clashed very violently before, not just amongst themselves, but versus the central government. And Renard's going to be speaking about this uh, in more detail. I wanted to speak a little bit about also the process when it comes to selecting the Grand Ayatollah in Najaf, who sits at the top of the religious establishment there. And of course, now there's a lot of talk about post-Sistani Iraq and what happens next, given Grand Ayatollah Sistani is today 88 years old. So of course, there's many questions, not just over who's going to replace him, but what role foreign governments are going to, or even can play in shaping that process. In a nutshell, I want to note that unlike the Catholic Church, where the cardinals meet at the Vatican until a pope is elected, the process in Negev is, is much more complicated and it's much more opaque. And we have both grassroots pressures which affect this process and also top-down influence. And often they're independent of each other, though not necessarily so. Sistani's own network is going to play a crucial role. So Sistani has an international network of institutions, representatives, clerics, scholars, and they're going to play a key role in terms of gravitating towards one or more candidates to fill Sistani's shoes. But of course, equally important, we have the tribes in Iraq and other lay Shia in Iraq, in the region and the wider world who are also going to play a very big role when they gravitate towards one or more clerics. And of course, this could take time. So the last transition between Ayatollah Khoi and Ayatollah Sistani took over five years. It's not going to be something that happens overnight and we're going to have a, a new Sistani. Um, it could take weeks, it could take months, or it could take uh, years. But eventually, as Shia lay people, as religious clerics, institutions, put their weight behind a particular candidate, one candidate will emerge as the first amongst equals. Of course, there are a lot of fears that foreign governments are going to attempt to game the system. But what I think is interesting is that these fears, to put more bluntly, of Iran's alleged attempt to take over the house of Najaf and the religious establishment in Iraq, these fears are a lot more pronounced in the Western world and Arab world than in Iraq itself, where Iranian influence you know, in the economic, political, cultural, and security spheres is much more pronounced. And I think it's because the limitations and restraints on Iran's ability to influence this process is much better understood in Iraq than it is outside Iraq. So despite Iran's undeniable presence in those spheres in Iraq, when it comes to religion, it's, it's slightly more complicated and much more difficult for Iran to influence this process. So Nejef represents the mainstream orthodox school within Shia Islam, and it's in stark contrast to the revolutionary interpretation of Shia Islam, which Ayatollah Khomeini first implemented in 1979, but which was based on a jurisprudential theory that predated the Islamic revolution in Iran by over a century. And I think Nejef represents a, a silent majority across the Shia world, but the perceptions 
of Najaf's power vis-a-vis Iran's power is skewed by the simple fact that the Najaf school is politically, intellectually, and more importantly, financially independent of any government or state. Whereas the school in Najaf, of course, relies on the state and has you know, the backing of state resources. And with that comes the ability to project power and influence. But it's highly unlikely that Iran can influence the post-Sistani Merja'iyah transition because you just, you, you just can't parachute somebody, no matter how big of a state you are, no matter how much money you have, you can't just parachute somebody from outside into a very traditional orthodox system and expect them to take the helm. And it's interesting, Sistani himself, often when people speak to him and say the word Sistani, he interrupts them and says, don't say Sistani, say Nejaf. So he sees himself not as exceptional, despite his exceptional role in Iraq, but he doesn't view himself as somehow unique. He sees himself as a product of a system which will produce the next Sistani after him. And I think the, you know, beyond Sistani and the senior four grand ayatollahs, there's confidence in Najaf that the system is resilient and it's going to survive the transition. And of course, this, this skewed perception I'm talking about when people compare this to Iran is also reflected in the popular mobilization forces themselves. So to academics, to policymakers, to journalists, when you speak about the popular mobilization, the most common ones you hear of are Asaab al-Hilhaq, the Badr Brigade, uh, Kitab, Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed groups, which of course have state resources, not just in Iraq, but beyond Iraq. And of course, they have very sophisticated communication channels which project that they are the majority or the most powerful of these groups. But actually, in Iraq, we have Liwa Ali al-Akbar, Firqat al-Abbas, Firqat al-Imam Ali. These are much lesser known units affiliated to the shrines in Karbala and Najaf, which are run by Grand Ayatollah Sistani's representatives. So in 2014, after the rise of ISIS and Sistani's fatwa, calling on all able-bodied Iraqis who can bear arms to defend Iraq against terrorism, there was a massive grassroots recruitment drive. And, you know, tens of thousands of Iraqis from Baghdad to the south, they marched to army recruitment centers to join the Iraqi security services. And I think this is key to point out, Sistani didn't call on Iraqis joining militia groups or groups outside the control of the Iraqi state. But as Harith mentioned, the army had collapsed at that time. ISIS was, was you know, 30, 35 kilometers away from the capital itself. There was a great panic in Iraq, and the state just couldn't absorb these recruits. And that's why the established Iranian-backed militias at the time were able to expand and actually exploit Sistani's fatwa to increase their power. But what's interesting is over time, so Sistani said, join the security services. That didn't happen. The established groups took advantage of this. But over time, the shrine cities in Karbala and Najaf in the south of Iraq established units of their own. And there was a sense of, you know, if you can't beat them, then join them. So also have efforts and allow recruits to participate in the war against ISIS, independent of those Iranian-backed groups. And actually those units affiliated to the shrines in Najaf and Karbala, they coordinate much more closely with the Ministry of Defense and they're often led by former army officers. Very briefly, I want to talk about Iraq-Saudi relations and, and the opening up of this relation we saw in recent months. And there was a lot of hope in the new Saudi leadership, of course, before the tragic events in Turkey. 
there was hope that the Saudis would change their position on Iraq. And on many occasions, the Iraqi politicians, in particular the Shia Iraqi politicians, were signaling to the Saudis, look, if you're worried about Iran, if you don't trust the Shia, then at least be present in the Sunni provinces, Sunni-dominated provinces in Iraq. And there now seems to be more engagement from Riyadh. So far, though, it's just been symbolic. You know, we've had direct flights from Saudi Arabia to Iraq re-established. We've had the border, Saudi-Iraq border, reopened. And of course, Saudi and other Gulf states have pledged billions of dollars in you know, post-ISIS reconciliation. But there's been no concrete transformative shift. And of course, as you can imagine, the events in Turkey are going to make this much more complicated. We also don't know how Iran is going to react to an increased Saudi presence in Iraq. But I think what's interesting is when there was talk of a Saudi consulate opening in Negev, and of course, this, this is going to be a big deal, the Iranian ambassador in Baghdad came straight to Negev. He met with one of the Grand Ayatollahs and he told him, you know, this is unacceptable. We can't allow the Saudis to open a spy den in Negev. You know, just 200 years ago, the Wahhabis sacked the holy cities in Iraq. But what's interesting is the religious establishment didn't object to Saudi plans for having a consulate in Negev. And actually, this particular Grand Ayatollah turned around to the ambassador and said, fair enough, but don't you also have a consulate in a holy city in Iran. So I'll, I'll conclude with, we are seeing a much more assertive and confident religious establishment in Iraq. And of course, many of the reasons Harith has already mentioned. But just to give two very recent examples, when Iran boycotted the Hajj a couple of years ago, they called on the Iraqi Shia to do the same. The religious establishment not only refused to boycott, but they sent personal delegations to participate in the Hajj. And now the Merji'i of Iraq does want good relations with all Iraq's neighbors. And secondly, and finally, we are now going through the Arba'in pilgrimage in Iraq. It's a once a year religious occasion where millions of Iraqis and Shias from outside Iraq march towards the city of Karbala. And for many years, of course, this was a practice that was banned under the Ba'ath regime. And it's been growing ever since 2003. Since 2003, the Islamist political parties in Iraq have always had a big presence uh, in this procession. And they've always used this religious occasion as an opportunity to mobilize their supporters and to politicize the message of Imam Hussein in the pilgrimage uh, to his shrine. But in recent years, and for the first time, we've seen Najaf respond by deploying over a thousand clerics along the Najaf Karbala highway to counter the Islamist politicization of the Arba'in. And I think I'll leave at that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our last speaker is uh, Renard Mansour, who is a research fellow at Chatham House and who has worked extensively on state-society relations in Iraq, has written a PhD at the other unnamed place on the Kurds and their international I'll be brief because I know it's a Friday evening and I'm the sort of the third speaker and I think there's been a lot covered already to digest with, with the two previous really distinguished speakers. I suppose I get to do the kind of 
sexy militarization of identity. So that's kind of, you know, I, ho I hope it becomes more of a sort of talk on what we've seen in terms of the security sector. But what it is, is are we talking about the militarization of sect, of particularly the Shia sect, when we talk about the popular mobilization units, Al-Hajj al-Sha'bi. And to start, I want to touch on a few themes that will kind of go through the, the presentation. I come from a background which is political studies and international relations, so I really like to talk about the state. And so that will be the theme of how I, the lens that I view the Hashid through. And the first argument my presentation will make is there is no clear line between state and non-state armed actors. And I think what you see with uh, Al-Hajj al-Sha'bi is that blurring of the line where they can act at the same time with the state and against the state in Iraq. The second big sort of you know, conclusion that, that I'll make or I'll test is whether how ideological they, it actually is. How much can a conflict be ideological or whether there are other reasons that explain the mobilization and militarization of this identity and whether there is too much of a focus, I'd say, on the Shia militias as they are. So what are the driving forces, not just for the mobilization of the people, but what drives these groups? And finally, this is a final trend, I suppose you can call it. Can you really separate politics from security from economics in Iraq. All these groups are political groups that have armed wings and also make quite a bit of money on the business side. And that will lead to the big conclusion, I think, I have a lot of conclusions before I didn't say anything, but the big conclusion of the talk, which is the hashit, if we're talking about that as a problem to the state, is not unique, even within Iraq. It's not the first or last or only group that has a political influence, that has an armed group, and that has businesses. In fact, some other groups are supported by the West and supported directly through military aid and financial aid, even though those groups are similarly armed factions linked to the political parties and not to the state. So when you use the lens of the state, what you see is a big problem that goes beyond these groups are bad because perhaps they're closer to Iran, and these groups are good because they're lobbying us better in, in Washington. And these contradictions are not lost on the ground in Iraq. And so when we talk about security sector reform, and we talk about how we can fix it, focusing on one while ignoring the problem in the other areas is not a starting point. So what is the Hashid? Just to kind of briefly, Haider has already uh, touched on it, so I won't go too much into it, but the Hashid as a commission, as a committee, was created in 2014, but it brought together several existing armed groups. One being the Badr Organization, which was created in the early 80s as a wing of what would later become the Islamic Supreme Council of Iraq in Iran, right? You had other groups that had existed from the times of the Mahdi army, Asab al-Haq, Kitab Hezbollah, and others. There was about six or seven groups that came together in June 2014, once Daesh had taken over uh, Mosul, they benefited from, as, as Haider has said, a fatwa that came from Najaf that called for people to mobilize to fight against this existential threat. And this is an important point on the Hashid. It was very difficult to critique the Hashid because they have martyrs. And many of these recruits, they fought against Daesh 
under a fatwa, believing it was part of not, their, not just their religious duty, but their patriotic duty to save their country. Most of the people of Hashid were from Basra, going to defend the Sunni Musul area, right? So there is a patriotism to it as well. But nonetheless, when you spoke to recruits at the time, what you saw was many of them were mobilized based on ideologies. And so the one hypothesis is that perhaps these ideologies become easier as recruitment tools at times of acute violence and when you have times of big crises. When those violence weighs down, recruits start looking for different sort of ways to maintain, and I think that's the issue the Hashid having today. Nonetheless, what has happened is the Hashid have never declared themselves as being anti-state. They've never ever said, we don't want to be part of the state. It's the opposite. They've always tried to become part of the state. And this happened even in 2003 and 4 or 5, when you look at the actions of the Badr organization, in- integrating what more people would call capturing, but some would call integrating into the Ministry of Interior. Right. So in 2014, you have all these different groups that emerge. They all recruitment. They all go out to fight against Daesh. Haid al-Abadi becomes prime minister. And he's celebrated over the years as being the prime minister that was able to bring all these groups together, that was able to handle the Iran-U.S. problem, that was able to sort of fight against Daesh and, and win, right? And it's obviously easier to criticize him, you know, if he's retired and, and not, you know, in, in hindsight, I suppose. But one of his biggest mistakes, as we'll see, is his clear lack of vision of what to do with the Hashid. Sometimes he said they were with the state. Sometimes he said we integrate them, they're bad. Sometimes he said they're good. So there was no vision. There was no idea of how to handle this emergence. So what you really have is the weakness of the unitary state, unable to handle the militarization of society in 2014 and 15. Now, according to Iraqi law, as, you know, as many have argued before, armed forces are supposed to go under either the Ministry of Defense or Ministry of Interior. The Ministry of Defense, it's the army and those issues, Ministry of Interior, if it's the police, and, and federal police, local police, and others. In 2007, Nouri al-Maliki, as prime minister, because he was fighting other, other groups at the time, decided to take some pieces out of the Ministry of Defense, particularly the, what became known as the Counterterrorism Service and the Special Forces, and to put them directly under the prime minister's office. At the time, this was seen, and as he eventually used this force, the CTS, it was seen as his personal army, Jaysh al-Maliki, that force, later on, when Abadi took over, became the most celebrated force on the front line fighting Daesh. Everyone forgot the fact that there is a legal question on the CTS, but everyone supported it. And this is the point that I've been trying to make. We often, because of all the different crises in Iraq, and there are many, we forget the kind of the precedents that are being set by these extra-legal activities, some are good and some are bad. We often assign normative values to them without understanding what the impact will be. The reason why I say this is because the CTS now, as an organization, is to some extent independent of the MOD and MOI, but the head of the CTS considers himself to be a minister at ministerial level, right? So they, they have their own power. So what you have is, you know, armed force becoming spread out across. The prime minister has his. Now, in November 2016, as some of you know, there was a law that was passed in the Iraqi parliament on the issue of the Hashid. This law was passed 
because there was no central authority, because the prime minister was unable to come up with a clear vision, because the prime minister was really unable to even politique in parliament, he didn't control his, the parliament, this law was passed. If you read the law, you won't, you won't spend a very long time. It's actually just a few paragraphs. But in the law, which is a really important law, what it says is the popular mobilization units are an independent force under the prime minister's office. Okay? I used to meet with many Hashid leaders and commanders at local levels, federal levels, throughout the years. Until that date, they always would talk about all these plans of how they're going to integrate. They even gave their different groups numbers. This is battalion one, two, three, all the way to 313. I mean, there was all these ideas. And they knew they had to do it. After this law passed, half a page, it fundamentally changed the question of integrating these groups. Now they say, we're like the CTS, because the CTS has a similar legal standing. But why is one celebrated and what we're going to integrate? There's no point in integrating. We no longer need to give in our uniforms. We're not part of the MOD. We're not part of the MOI. We now are an independent force. This was a law that was passed by the parliament, ratified, and there was no objections by either the president or the prime minister. So the question of integration of the Hashid is, for now, off the table, because they view themselves as state actors and independent, right? Whether that reappears in the future, we'll have to see. And as I alluded to earlier, the Hashid aren't unique in this. If you look at the Peshmerga, as, I was, as some of you probably thought I was commenting on, the Peshmerga primarily are loyal to either the Kurdistan Democratic Party or the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, right? Not the Kurdistan regional government and certainly not the Iraqi central government. Yet, in the war against Daesh, the US and the UK and others decided these groups, notwithstanding their legal standing, are good to use to fight, not just in Iraq, but send them to Kobani to fight in Syria as well. Right? So the war against Daesh and, and the last few years have kind of set these precedents that will be very difficult to go back against. And the Hashid, when you speak to them, and when you have these Americans coming or these UK, you know, Brits coming, the EU come, oh no, you should integrate, you should integrate. They say, really? Why should we integrate? Nobody's integrated. Right? That's their argument. Look at the CTS, look at the Peshmerga. These are the precedents that they themselves point to. So the question then becomes, and I've been talking about the security until now, but what happens to the future? The Hashid are following a National Guard model, right? You have these two kind of tiers of Hashid that have emerged. Now, of course, as Haider said, the Hashid, you can't qualify them as one organization. They're competing ideologies. There are many internal differences between them. In the past, they've been sort of qualified as some that are closer to Iran, some that are closer to Sistani, and some that are closer to uh, Sadr and others. There's different ways, but, and, and there's a lot of internal tensions. But what you have now, increasingly, is a central Hashid command, which is sort of run by those in the commission, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, as some of you may know, Hadi al-Amri, Qais al-Khazali. These are the kind of leaders of central command, but then they are engaging at the local level with local leaders. And this is when we get back to whether this is all identity-based. Because the Hashid are working in Sunni areas with Sunni fighters. In Kirkuk, they're working with Shia Turkmen fighters, right? They have good relations. They cooperate to some extent at times with Iran, with the Kurdish fighters of the PUK. If you look at the deal they made in Kirkuk in October uh, 2017. So they're trying to become a national guard, right? 
trying to reflect the different complexities. And they're also trying to capture not just the central government, but the locality. So if you look at Diyala, the provincial government of Diyala, it's very much close to the Badr organization. In Basra, and I'll get into this, the Hashid came first in, in, in the elections. So the question, the final question on, on this becomes Iran, right? And the Hashid are often linked to Iran because the most powerful actors in the Hashid are linked to Iran, and there's that Shia sort of crescent that the Jordanians and the Gulf like to talk about. As I said, first of all, it's important to note that Iran is not this omnipotent force in Iraq, and Iran makes many mistakes. And 2014 was a huge mistake for Iran. It does not want Iraq to fail to the point where something like Daesh can come on its borders. It obviously doesn't want Iraq to become too strong, because then you have the, the legacies of the eight-year war between the two countries. So it wants to control Iraq, but it doesn't want Iraq to fail. Right? So the best way to do this is to have control over different levers of society, right? And this is a cross-sect. Iran has deals with not just the Shi'i, but also with Sunnis and Kurds, as the PUK, Talabani particular example shows, but also have connections with the state actors as well as these different PMU groups. So that if you have a fire in one department, you're able to kind of put it out with, with other sides. And that's the kind of thing Iran's trying to move forward. But nonetheless, I think it's important to note that. The Hashid ran in the elections under Fatih. They all changed their names, you know, like Asab al-Haq became Sadiqun. They, they said, no, no, we're completely separate. If you meet with some of my, you know, the Hashid people I used to meet with, they used to wear uniforms, now they're wearing suits. And they're, but, but what's important to note is they're not going to parliament. Some of them are returning to politics because they view themselves as being on sabbatical. So this is not a new problem. This is not new. Many people view Iraq in linear terms. It's cyclical. And we're going to continue to deal with these cycles of conflict in Iraq as long as the roots of the problem aren't being addressed. And until now, the roots are not being addressed. But what's happening, and this is what I'm going to conclude on, even the Hashid is not prone to the problems of Iraq and governance. So if you look at the most recent protests in Basra, even the Hashid offices were burned because they're now being seen as part of the elite. Even in parliament, Hadi al-Amri, who's the head of Fatih, is unable to control many of his MPs. So just because they're all together doesn't mean they don't suffer from the same systemic issues of corruption, of internal dissent, and fundamentally of the biggest fault line in Iraq moving forward, which is not going to be between Sunnis and Shias and Kurds, as we've seen, but which will be between the citizens and the elite who have ruled. You have more and more a rejection of that class and the Hashid have both. They have elite in the Hashid and they have fighters who are coming back, not getting jobs. And increasingly, if this new government is unable to govern, you're going to see protests emerging very soon. Thanks. Well, thank you very much for these very interesting comments. I'm just going to use my position for one minute. I was quite surprised, and you know, you can ask those other questions, that Mokhtar al-Sadr wasn't mentioned and the alliance with the communists. Because obviously when, when I was in Iraq, that was what a lot of people talked about. And then after the elections, right, we all read that this bloc had won the election. So if you could just allude uh, or explain to us well, what happened then over the summer in terms of the negotiations and why you know, they are now, well, not, certainly not in charge of the new government, and if this alliance you know, between the old left, the Communist Party of Iraq, and clerical leader you know, was a one-off show, or whether there's some more substance to it and it can be sustained or re-emerge in the future. It's addressed to all of you. 
Okay. So I think Muqtada Sadr's position is also similar to that of Sistani, except that he's more involved in politics. He also seeks a change within the system, but at the same time he responds to the demands of his constituency. And it's, it's very well known that his constituency are often people who live in the poorest sectors of the Shia society in Sadr city in Baghdad and other Shia centers, although this also has changed, relatively changed over the last decade, but still he has to appeal to his constituency to adopt their demands and at the same time make sure that those demands don't turn into radical force that sweep out everything. And if we keep this in mind, probably we'll be able to understand his latest moves. Uh, He reinvented himself as a reformist. He thought that it is in the long term, it's better for him not to be consumed by behind-the-scenes compromises with the political elites and instead position himself as, as one that stands between the elite and the public. Therefore, he found in the protest a moment in which he could rebuild his authority, reinvent his image, and especially in this context of the plummeting of oil prices, the scarcity that... that came as a new factor since 2013. Therefore, there is not much to share with the others if you stay in power. In his probably rational calculations, he felt that it is more awarding to to keep this distance from the political elite, yet continue to try to have his own political party to use it in order to put pressure on the other groups. And in this, in this context, he allied with the, with the Communist Party that was part of the protest movement. And as Renad, there, this, this also was a, a response to a shift in, in the political uh, polarization. It's, it's uh, no longer simply a competition between Kurdish, Shia and Sunni parties. There is a change that is happening that is, uh, is changing the, the political polariza- polarization and an alliance into one that is strongly influenced by the socio-economic conditions and the demand uh, coming from the uh, grassroots movements. I would just add to that by saying the actual alliance between Sadr and the communists predated the elections by several years, or the beginnings of the alliance. And that was because post-Arab Spring, even pre-ISIS, you had young, usually secular or let's say not religious Iraqis taking to the streets, protesting for reform, anti-corruption. And I think Sadr saw that as an opportunity. And eventually the Sadrists hijacked the protest, not just hijacked, they amplified it. And I attended several of these protests in Najaf and Baghdad. Sometimes you'd have 20, 30, 40, you know, consistent, but very small numbers. And then all of a sudden overnight, it became tens of thousands. But what was interesting for those protesting, when they were hijacked by the Sadrists, the Sadr movement didn't change the slogans. It remained nationalist. There was quite overt anti-Islamist, anti-religious slogans. And I think that gave them hope and confidence that actually, well, you know, it's not a bad thing that we have this boost. But he still faces a big contradiction. He's in government, but he's not in government. He had corrupt ministers, but he's a champion of reform. And even in this recent elections, his aide played a key role in the cabinet selection process. So his representative was in Adil Abdel Mehdi's transition team. So he had a say on all the cabinet positions, but he deliberately didn't give any positions to his own people, uh, Sadr. And that's quite smart. So if this government succeeds, he's going to take all the credit for it. It only succeeded because I pushed for it and I, and I played a role. And of course, if it fails, and he's even almost threatened the prime minister saying, you have one year, you know, we're going to evaluate you uh, in one year's time. 
So if it fails, he can say, well, I had nothing to do with it. None of my people were there. So it's a, it's a smart position, but it's not sustainable. And over time, I think people are going to see through it as just another elite politician part of the system. I have to understand protests. It's, it's important to note that in Iraq, the reason why the, the language of the protests has become so mainstream, unlike other areas, is because all the elite decided to use the protest against each other. Right? So Sadr used the protest with his, but also the Hashid used protests. For example, we, just, we talked about the Saudi concept. There was a huge protest movement of the Hashid against that. So they started to use protest as a way to, to kind of politic against each other. So that brought the protest movement into politics. And they all use that word civic. All the like, Qasim Ali is using the word civic and saying that he's a civic actor. They, they all need to use those words to become mainstream. On Sadr, it's a movement, not an institution. And that's a big problem. So many of the senior Sadrists believe that since they won, they should have a, a, some kind of responsibility, some role, some post. And he said, no, continue. And if you look at how Sadr has run, he, every time any sort of leaders become big, he kind of wants to sideline them because he wants to keep it at that populist movement rather than any sort of hierarchical institution. So that's a big issue. On the question of leftist versus you know, moving with them, the problem was, I mean, first of all, Tejah says, Mukhtar can't make up his mind of whether he's in opposition or he's in government, right? He has an understanding with Adil Amri that runs the current shape, creating, uh, forming the government, but at the same time, he's probably going to leave and protest and say, it wasn't me, right? So that's a huge problem for many of the constituents. To me, the fundamental problem, the, the communists had a red line that Muqtada wasn't able to deal with. And that was bringing in some of the Shi'i militias. Many of the communists who even agreed to deal with Muqtada, one of their red lines was that none of the security ministries should be in the hands of these groups and the Hashid. And obviously Muqtada couldn't sort of do anything about that. So now even, you know, Jasmine Hidfi and others who have been staunch uh, Muqtada supporters are beginning to have to defend themselves more. Okay. Thank you very much.